Hello and welcome to episode 260 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we return to Northern Ireland during the Troubles for the second part of the story which began last week with the T-Bain bombing in January 1992. But before we start, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially this week's new members. That is Giz Philed Ryland, Ashley D and Deirdre Allen. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. As this is the second part of a two-part story, we'll have to swerve our guest the month and year game today. I know, I know. And also, as there are no adverts, I'll just get on with it. But again, I do just need to be clear that this isn't a politics or a religious podcast. I vote green and I'm an atheist for what it's worth. I say this as in the case today, with so much conflicting information available and such strong feelings, the truth is not always easy to find. I've told the story in the best, most objective way that I can, with the politics of the situation just there for vital context. As you'll recall from last week, the T-Bain bombing saw eight men on their way home from construction work at a British army barracks, murdered by IRA terrorists. In his book, The Long War, Brendan O'Brien wrote, In terms of IRA military strategy, the T-Bain bomb was a success. It struck with deadly ferocity and effect and would have been extremely intimidating to others contemplating taking jobs on bombed-out IUC and British Army buildings. This bomb also served as a warning to loyalist paramilitaries who had carried out a succession of killings in Tyrone. But in this case, the loyalist paramilitaries were not going to let this attack go with no revenge. As we've already heard, tit-for-tat killings between the various groups operating in Northern Ireland were depressingly common. And it was just three weeks later, on the 5th of February 1992, that this terrible revenge was taken by the loyalist paramilitary group, the Ulster Defence Association, or UDA. Formed in 1971, its goal was to defend Protestant loyalist areas and combat Irish republicanism, especially the IRA. To avoid the UDA being banned by the British government for being a terrorist group, its paramilitary attacks were carried out by a group given the cover name the Ulster Freedom Fighters, or UFF. This organisation, like all sides in the conflict, destroyed so many families as it took the lives of over 400 people. Many were randomly selected Irish Catholic civilians, killed in what they described as retaliation for IRA attacks on Protestants. It was run by an inner council who took the view after T-Bain that they needed a major, high-profile attack to send a strong message to the IRA and the other Republican terrorists. The decision was taken to attack her bookmakers on the Lower Omer Road in Belfast, which was located in a nationalist area. Mid-afternoon would typically be the busiest time for bookmakers, and so would ensure the maximum number of casualties. It was 2.25pm on Wednesday the 5th of February 1992, when two men got out of their blue Ford Escort car, which was parked on University Avenue, directly facing the Sean Graham bookmakers on a busy South Belfast street. But these men weren't there to place a bet on the horses. They were dressed in boiler suits and balaclavas. One was armed with a 9mm pistol and the other 
a VZ.58 Czechoslovak assault rifle. There were 15 customers in the shop. When the two gunmen walked inside, they fired indiscriminately, releasing 44 bullets before running back to the car and racing from the scene. As they fled, one shouted two words, Remember T-Bane, suggesting this action was taken in revenge for the events three weeks previously. The shop wasn't a large one, just 28 feet times 11 feet, and when the firing had stopped, 12 of the 13 patrons had been shot. One man who was wounded in the attack told British journalist Peter Taylor what had happened on that terrible afternoon. There was a right crowd in the betting shop, and I cracked a joke with a couple of them. They were like that, always laughing and carrying on. I'd only been in for about 20 or 25 minutes when the shooting started. I was standing next to the door with a docket in my hand studying the form. At first I thought it was a hold-up, but then the shooting started and somebody yelled, hit the deck. I just lay there and prayed that the shooting would stop. It seemed to go on for a lifetime. There wasn't a sound for a few seconds. Everyone was so stunned, but then the screaming started. People were yelling out in agony. You could hardly see anything. The room was full of gun smoke and the smell would have choked you. Mark Sykes was in the shop. He was shot four times but escaped with his life. He later told how, and I quote, The shooting seemed to stop for a second. I was lying on the ground at this stage and I could see a person coming in. I could see his feet. I saw him walking about the bookies and then shooting them. I knew by the layout of the bookies that he'd have to come past me so I put my hands up over my head and I felt myself being shot under my arms. The emergency services were quickly on the scene and described what they found as absolute and sheer carnage as they battled desperately to save lives. Harry Warren, who was a divisional ambulance officer for Belfast and was one of the first on the scene within minutes of being alerted, said The scene was horrific with bodies everywhere. In that confined space there was the smell of gunfire and all the bleeding and whatever that you couldn't describe. Other ambulance men it was worse. They were knee deep in it, dealing with the dead and the dying. In the tight-knit local community, news of what had happened quickly spread and relatives of those injured and killed were rapidly on the scene from the adjoining streets of this small nationalist community of which the bookmakers and a few other shops and pubs all within yards of each other at the very centre. The son of William McManus was nearby and he heard the shots and ran to the scene. Then he was stopped by a friend from entering the bookies. He told him that his dad had been in there and he'd been killed. He later described the scene saying that people were shouting and trying to get in. It was absolute mayhem. The atmosphere occasionally was calmer with emotional scenes as friends and relatives found each other in the gathered crowd and they then knew that they hadn't been caught up in the disaster. One woman comforted another, telling her that her son, who was inside the bookies at the time of the attack, had survived the shooting. But this same woman at the time didn't know that her own 18-year-old son had died, and his body lay inside. As the dreadful day dragged on towards evening, four bodies were brought out of the bookmaker's shop. Then came the terrible news that 15-year-old James Kennedy had died shortly after his arrival at hospital. 
The families of those who had lost their lives were comforted by their friends, neighbours and others at the scene. And by the evening, there was clarity about the victims. Five people had lost their lives and seven other men who were in the shop and had been shot some several times survived the attack. Four were very seriously injured in intensive care. The men who died were 52-year-old Christy Doherty, 66-year-old Jack Duffin, 18-year-old Peter McGee and 54-year-old William McManus. 15-year-old James Kennedy, as we've heard, managed to survive until he reached the hospital with his final words reported as, Tell my mummy that I love her. His mum, Kathleen, never recovered from her son's death, dying herself just two years later. Her husband, James Sr., would later say, The bullets that killed James didn't just travel in distance, they travelled in time. Some of those bullets never stopped travelling. 18-year-old Peter McGee also died that day. His sister, Clara, later told how their lives changed forever on that one day. Her home was turned upside down, she said. It especially hit Peter's twin brother. His life has never been the same. The UDA statements claiming responsibility appeared soon afterwards. It said that the killings were justified as the Lower Ormo Road was one of the IRA's most active areas. The statement also included the phrase, Remember T-Bain, echoing the words from the gunman as they'd fled the scene. Terrorist Alex Kerr, who was at the time the UDA brigadier for South Belfast, released a second statement about a month after the attack, once again attempting to justify the murders of five innocent civilians, saying that the IRA was extremely active in the area and the nationalist population there shielded them. They paid the price for T-Bain. He also made it quite clear that the UDA wouldn't hesitate to respond again with such force if there were any more attacks by the IRA, like the one at T-Bain. This idea of the murders being justified some way by what had happened by the previous attack at T-Bain were not shared by many in the local community. One such person appalled by this was the Reverend Ivor Smith, a Presbyterian minister who was based in the area and who worked with the families of the bomb victims. He said that the UDA claim was like a knife through the heart. We were absolutely appalled at the thought that somebody would try to do something like that and justify it by bringing in T-Bain. As far as the families were concerned, it was very definitely not in my name. Those affected directly by the T-Bain bombing also did not share this view of revenge. Billy Gilchrist's husband had been killed at T-Bain and she wrote a letter detailing her deep sympathy for the shooting at the bookmakers, which was read out at the funeral of Jack Duffin. Nobody has ever been convicted of murder for the shootings at the Sean Graham bookmakers. Locally, it was understood that two local UDA figures who lived nearby were responsible, Joe Bratty and Raymond Elder. Joe Bratty had a background for street fighting with local Catholics. The two communities lived close together around the Omer Road. Raymond Elder came from the same area and had a similar background. He was close with Bratty, often being described as his sidekick. They progressed from street fighting to the UDA, with Bratty eventually leading his own unit 
from Annadale Flats with Elder at his side. Their first known killing was on the 7th of September 1990, when they killed a 34-year-old Catholic, Emmanuel Shields, and shot him dead as he lay in bed with his pregnant girlfriend. Emmanuel had been beaten by future members of Bratty's team when they were kids growing up and had escaped shooting attack at his mum's home a few years earlier. It was thought that Bratty had planned the bookmaker shootings and Elder was one of the gunmen, with the other one supplied by Johnny Mad Dog Adair, a high-profile leader of the UDA, once described by the BBC as the most controversial, high-profile and ubiquitous of all the paramilitaries operating in Northern Ireland during this period. Bratty was identified as having attempted to buy at an auction a getaway car for the loyalist gunman who carried out the attack. He couldn't have been one of the gunmen himself, as on the day of the shootings he was in court. Elder was named as the gunman by a number of witnesses, and fibres from the getaway car were found on his clothing. He was arrested less than 24 hours afterwards, in what police believe was the gang's second getaway car. However, charges against him were dropped in November 1992. When Elder was released from prison, Adair invited Bratty and Elder to a celebration party in Scotland where he gave Bratty a gold ring with the initials UFF. But although Bratty and Elder avoided jail, they knew they were prime targets for the IRA. And in 1994, both were killed by the Republican terrorists. The political drive for peace at this time meant that an IRA ceasefire was imminent and it has been suggested that these two murders were one of a number of revenge attacks before the ceasefire kicked in. The two friends had been enjoying a beer at the Kimberley Bar, which was just off the Ormo Road, unaware that IRA members were sitting in a van outside armed with AK-47s. As the two were regular drinkers at the same pub every Sunday, the IRA knew exactly where they were going to be. When Bratty and Elder left the pub, they were hit with a barrage of bullets and died on the street. Two of Bratty's cousins were also with them when they left the bar, but the IRA attackers didn't shoot those two. It was reported that the getaway car was pursued by the Royal Ulster Constabulary in an unmarked patrol car who fired shots and brought the vehicle to a halt in nearby Hatfield Street. But the terrorists were allowed to escape when the police were surrounded by a rowdy crowd and so the gunmen made their escape on foot. Elder was just 31 when he died and Bratty only 33. Bratty also left behind a wife and three children. A plaque commemorating the lives of Bratty and Elder was established outside the Kimberley Bar, a known UDA bar and the pub where they'd been drinking on the day of their deaths. The lack of convictions for the Sean Graham bookmaker shootings has been the cause of considerable controversy right up to the present day, as many people believe that the reason nobody's ever been convicted is due to collusion between the loyalist paramilitaries and the British state in these killings. The relatives of those murdered are still calling for a full public examination of the arming and controlling of the UDA-UFF through state-run agents in relation to the murders. Look, this isn't my expertise and this could be a six-hour podcast as there's so much to be discussed around this. 
but let's just briefly look at some of the uncomfortable facts. Firstly, the guns. According to the Stevens Inquiry, a special branch agent called William Stobie, who was also a UDA North Belfast quartermaster, gave four weapons to his special branch handlers, one of which was the Browning 9mm, used in the shooting we've heard about today. Special Branch claimed to have deactivated this gun before it was given back to Stobie, but they either did not discharge the firearm properly, or they were not telling the truth, as this gun was used in terrorist attacks, including the Sean Graham bookmakers attack. Secondly, fingerprints from Bratty were found on the auction bidding slip for the first getaway car, and despite the fact he was a well-known senior figure in the EDA, he wasn't arrested for four and a half months. Then the second getaway car was stopped twice by the RUC in Belfast on the evening of the shooting and it contained two senior members of the UDA, including Raymond Elder. At 1am, Elder was arrested for a minor motoring offence but there are no RUC records available to shed further light on this. There were a number of inconsistencies in the forensic evidence. For example, despite over 40 shots being fired in the bookmakers, no gun residue was found in the first getaway car. As we've heard, the shooting would have created a load of gun smoke. And why was Raymond Elder not taken to trial when there were witnesses, forensic evidence, and he had a seriously leaky alibi? There was another key suspect referred to as Mr A by the Historical Inquiries team, or HET, the body set out to investigate murders during the Troubles. He wasn't ever arrested but he has been named in intelligence as one of the men responsible for the murder of Aidan Wallace just before the bookmaker shootings. And the Browning gun used in the shootings was also used to kill Aidan Wallace. Some have speculated that this Mr A, who was described as unstable and dangerous, was in fact a special branch agent. In 2011, the Hetz report concluded that there remains an absence of forensic fingerprint and identification evidence. The absence of such evidence presents a major challenge in progressing the inquiry. There are no new lines of inquiry or investigative opportunities in this case that could bring about the identification or prosecution of those responsible. But the relatives of those killed in the atrocity strongly disagree. Let me quote a piece from the Islamic Human Rights Commission which it seems to me sums up their view. It is contested by RFJ, that's Relatives for Justice, that in light of IRA attacks on commercial targets in Britain, the Thatcher administration unleashed armed unionists in order to strike terror into the nationalist community. Special Branch seems to have been an unaccountable entity in this whole fiasco, withholding vital information that could have saved lives all in the name of protecting agents who could, in turn, implicate the state in collusion with terrorism. Agents who murdered innocent Catholics. The situation in the North is different today. The scars of the conflict, however, still remain. RFJ believes that in order for the book to be closed on the Troubles, there needs to be a complete transparent investigation into the role of the British government in arming and abetting loyalists. Is there truth in this assertion? Was the British state involved in collusion? 
it's hard to know, which is why the relatives are still asking for a full public inquiry. And let's forward wind to this year. In February 2021, relatives and survivors attended the site of the shooting to remember those who had been lost. It was the 29th anniversary. They'd also called for the publication of a much-delayed police ombudsman's report into the murder of their loved ones. Due to COVID, public gatherings of more than six people were prevented in Northern Ireland at the time. And when up to 40 people arrived for the gathering, in scenes similar to the overreaction to the Sarah Everard vigil in London, the police massively overreacted and arrested Mark Sykes, who we heard from earlier, one of the survivors of the shooting. He was released two hours later, but the damage was done. I don't know about you, but as someone who almost always supports the police who carry out a terribly difficult job, I cringe when I see this sort of overreaction to such a clearly sensitive occasion. Hopefully they've learnt from such huge misjudgments like this one going forward. And as for the Ombudsman report into the Sean Graham shooting and other terrorist attacks, this still hasn't been published. Some of the most recent delays are due to the Police Service of Northern Ireland not disclosing all the information they held. They've now done so, which means we can expect this report sometime soon. I wonder just what answers it may provide. So what do you make of what we've heard today and last week? Terrible events, innocent people killed, families destroyed, and still a desperate search for the truth and the full story of what happened in both terrorist atrocities. I only hope for all of those involved that at some stage they will find out exactly what happened to their loved ones. After all these years waiting, surely it's the very least they deserve. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspects of UK True Crime, please join us at the Facebook group. There's almost 75,000 of us and one thing I can guarantee, it's never going to be dull. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please head to Patreon, that's patreon.com slash UK True Crime. You'll find bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that's all from me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, thanks again for joining me. And remember, despite all the others, it's the other people, isn't it? The other people are the problem. But despite that, please do stay classy. Cheerio for now.